Hello, and welcome to another Banking Transform Solution podcast. I'm your host, Jim Roos, CEO and owner of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the Financial Brand. Most core banking operations run on aging platforms that were deployed in the 80s and 90s. These platforms are either homegrown or so heavily customized since origination, they're no longer effective. The needs of the digital consumer and functionality required by banks going forward require solutions that enable and support the digital transformation journey and allow an organization to become future ready. Our guest on the Banking Transform podcast is Michael Haney, head of digital core at Technosys. We discuss the steps needed to modernize current core platforms and how firms are implementing these solutions. Competition in the banking industry has never been greater and change has never been faster. Digital banking firms are serving customers at one-third the cost of traditional banks using modern core technology built for digital delivery. These modern digital platforms enable firms to innovate faster and operate more efficiently than legacy banking organizations that have core systems built three or four decades ago. According to McKinsey, 70% of financial institutions are reviewing their core banking platforms. The key challenges are the cost and time to market as organizations look for the perfect solution. As I mentioned, I have Michael Haney, head of digital core for Technosys on the show today. To start us off today, Michael, can you introduce yourself and give people a quick overview of what Technosys does? Well, first of all, Jim, I want to thank you for having me on your podcast today. And we at Technosys are certainly avid readers of the financial brand and, of course, listeners of Banking Transformed. So by way of introduction, I've been working in the financial services industry for almost 30 years now. Most of that time, I've worked at large multinational financial institutions around the globe, including traditional banking hubs such as New York, Tokyo, London, and Zurich. And I've also worked for fintechs ranging from the largest fintech player on the planet all the way down to Silicon Valley startups. And as you stated, I'm currently the head of Technosys' digital core business line. And at Technosys, our mission really is to change the way people bank. And we do this through our cyberbank solution. It provides the digital technology banks need to become a more integral part of their customer's lifestyle. Now, the firm began life as a provider of internet banking solutions over 25 years ago, and it quickly grew into a fully integrated fashion to support both omni-channel banking as well as customer account processing. Now, CyberBank flips the traditional banking technology stack on its head, allowing banks to focus on customer engagement while simultaneously reducing the core's footprint to dramatically improve operational efficiency. Wow. You know, since the pandemic hit, most financial institutions have certainly been been playing a game of crisis management and catch-up as everything in banking went to digital solutions. What has been the impact on Technosys as well as the financial institutions that you serve in the marketplace? Starting with Technosys, our whole business runs on the cloud. So not only do we build, test, and deploy our cyberbank solutions in the cloud, everything from our HR systems to our sales automation tools are cloud-based. So when we switch to a working-from-home environment, we barely skip the beat. Uh, we continue to launch new product releases, onboard new employees, and sign new deals completely virtually. So successfully, in fact, that our executive committee is now questioning how much office space we truly need. And it's changed us in other ways, too. For example, our recruiting strategy has changed from a location-based focus 
to simply hiring the best talent wherever we can find them. Now for financial institutions, especially the incumbent players, it's proved to be a bit more of a challenge. Continuity of business practices typically focus on isolated events. My branch was flooded, the primary power supply to my data center failed, or there's a bug in one of my systems. No bank I know of really planned for an event where every employee in every role, in every location around the globe, needed to suddenly have a new place to work, and that was largely working from home. And also, we saw the bank's customer behavior change. In fact, they were forced to change. We saw the remaining holdouts of adoption of the newer digitally forward ways of banking the first time they downloaded their bank's mobile app to begin that self-service journey or to be able to utilize the bank's customer-facing video conferencing tools for the first time to speak to their financial advisor. And of course, the banks had to accelerate their speed to market of new products and services such as those PPP loans. So time to market pressures and the ability to quickly adapt to a changing environment have never been more top of mind for banking management. And observing how the newer fintech players can really move at speed only has increased that sense of urgency at the incumbent banks. You know, it's interesting. I, I come from the world of banking. I had worked in financial institutions in the late 70s through the 80s. I can't imagine that some of these organizations are still using basically the same platforms that were in place back then, although many have modernized to some degree, use chicken wire and duct tape, as they, duct tape, as they say. What are the challenges that you've seen as organizations know what needs to be done, but can't get off stuck? What are the challenges? Well, you're absolutely correct, especially back-end systems are still stuck in the 70s and 80s for many, many banks. But when it comes to digital transformation, initially banks thought it was enough to launch a new digital self-service channel, such as an internet banking portal or mobile application. And this helped them eliminate the need for those branches or those costly devices, such as the ATM, while moving and accelerating that move to banking anytime, anywhere. Then the focus moved to digitizing the physical world of paper and plastic, right? Everything from the monthly statement uh, to debit cards to even cash itself became the target as the cost to manage and process these items really ate into the bank's earnings. And then finally, those incumbent banks shifted their attention to the automation of business processes. The goal was to remove bank employees from the process to eliminate that human error, reduce the cost, improve scalability. But the common theme in all of these examples is cost reduction, labor elimination, real estate elimination, elimination of physical items such as checks. The focus is on productivity of existing business models. So it was a very bank-centric approach to the adoption of digital technologies. The improvement to the bank's operational efficiency was the challenge they were trying to address. But these days, the industry is focused on changing its business models entirely putting the goals of the customer first. Banks and their fintech challengers are now using technology to create new digital first products and services and embedding those at the point of need for the customer, no longer limiting their distribution of what they do to their own closed ecosystem of channels. So customers, what are they looking for? They're seeking more than just the ability to transact, which is what the old banking business model is all about. They're seeking ways they're seeking help, essentially, to manage their finances in ways that meet their goals and, and you know, better ways to manage their cash flow and so on and so forth. So the focus is on driving business outcomes beyond operational efficiency, 
P&L owners, such as the bank's product managers or the heads of customer experience, are the ones leading the charge now, not just the heads of operations and technology. And what's great is that this new generation of bank leaders is far more tech savvy than their predecessors in knowing uh, what technology can do for them. You know, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned about the digitizing the analog back office. Um, you know that you're exactly right. Financial institutions, and to a degree, still do think that the way to go digital is to digitize what they've done in the past. When really, it takes a complete rethinking of everything you ever knew about banking for a better world and a better implementation. Because we talked about before the actual uh, podcast that, you know, financial institutions, about 75% after COVID said they offered digital account opening and mobile account opening. The reality was though, while they offered it, it took 10 to 15 minutes, which isn't digital. It's not reality in the digital world. As you said, they're now organizations are now realizing that simply making things easier in the back office doesn't facilitate digital banking. It, it really has to be rethought from a digital perspective. So when institutions are looking to modernize their core banking platform today, what are they looking for? Yeah, and what you're really bringing up is this concept of a two-speed architecture that many banks have adopted over the last decade or so. They're pouring money into that front end, those digital channels. They're adopting the newer technology stacks that allow them to adapt at uh, high speeds, adapting to change. And these enable also agile ways of working. I think everybody's now familiar with agile methodologies, DevOps methodologies, and so on. But the backend team is still uh, working in a waterfall mode on legacy technologies. And so you end up with a bank where the front end moves at one speed and the back end moves at another speed. And we're starting to hit a wall because now it's not just about enabling those digital channels and embedding those experiences into third parties. We are now uh, seeking to fundamentally change the bank's products and services. So the back end now has to move at the same speed as the front end. And we also see other traditional variables that banks look for in a modern core, clearly the lower cost of ownership, not only the cost of change, but the cost to run in your production environment, the licensing cost, all those dimensions are things that banks are questioning. Should I still have, should I still be charged by account or by transaction? Should I still uh, house this core in my own data center? Uh, all those kind of questions come up when they look at total cost of ownership. We also see banks wanting to work at what I call the level of granularity they want to work at. Some banks are very happy working at, with extreme primitives. Others want to work at higher levels of abstraction. And so modern cores, such as our cyber bank, will allow banks to assemble primitives into more macro or composite services, allowing them to then embed at, uh, those services into their own channels, as well as third-party channels. Uh, either at a macro level or micro level or whatever they're comfortable working with. So that ability to quickly decompose a product or a service into those primitives and, and then recompose them in other ways in a fast manner is, is absolutely there. And lastly, viewing your backend as an enabler of customer journeys. Do we view these things in the same light? Can the backend uh, power the front end rather than just being distinct and separate from the front end and just be viewed as a transaction process. You know, it's interesting. In my introduction, I mentioned that a lot of organizations know what they need to do, but have a challenge in actually doing it. Um, you know, everything you're talking about 
obviously makes all the sense in the world, especially given our environment today and given the competitive environment that every organization's up against with organizations that really were built on digital course. When you're working with financial institutions, what are the hesitations that you hear from them as to why they're not moving forward? What are the what are the major challenges? What are the reasons why they don't get unstuck from your perspective? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, partly fear of the unknown. Many of these systems were built, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, on legacy technologies, which uh, some banks may not understand anymore, and the people who did understand them may have retired, uh, difficult to find those skill sets in the marketplace. Many of those systems, we didn't have the discipline back then to document them as well. Uh, they're wired into an environment I've seen as high as 160 or more applications to which the core is wired into. Uh, so that's viewed as heart surgery, right? That I'm I'm replacing something that's so tightly interwoven into my bank's operating model, and I'm afraid that even touching it will uh, disrupt something. Uh, but I think now that the business pressures have come to the point where they have uh, no, uh, uh, no ability to wait anymore, they have to now uh, act with speed and, and do what's right. Uh, but we do see uh, them taking different approaches to modernization than they have in the past. It was always the assumption that it was going to be a one-time event, a so-called Big Bang event, uh, where one day you're on your old core, then you switch over, and the next day, business day, you're on the new core. Those are not really the paths forward anymore. So uh, banks are searching for and have found alternative ways uh, to modernize their tech stack and, and be able to uh, do it in a way that's not so scary, if you will. Honestly, you know, we everybody is buried in today, and organizations look at a core transformation, as you said, as this big beast that that geez, I just don't want to face it. It's just too big. But what you're saying here is that organizations now have the ability to actually maybe modernize a component of what they do, make the make the whole effort of what they want to do in the long term into shorter elements where you can say, you know, my my biggest problem is on the on the deposit side of the bank and account opening all that. And you can help an organization find the best solution for that that will then be able to build into other areas in the future then? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, there are ways to uh, deploy your core as an iterative and progressive approach. Uh, one of the ways that comes to mind that most people think about is, is sort of a side-by-side -side core model. So perhaps I run deposits on one core and lending on another core with a view to then consolidating in the future uh, on a single core platform. That's the more modern of the two choices. Uh, that has advantages and disadvantages like any core modernization approach. Uh, now you have two cores wired into the same front-end systems as well as the same downstream systems such as your data warehouse and your general ledger and your AML monitoring solutions. Uh, now, side-by-side -side could also be done uh, in other ways. A lot of banks are now exploring or already have launched a digital-only subsidiary where they build the tech stack that they really want with the view of eventually cannibalizing their existing systems and moving them over to the new system. Uh, so again, we see a little bit more freedom uh, from in that in that scenario from the uh, upstream and downstream systems than we typically see. But you still often connect at things like a general ledger or payment rails or AML monitoring solutions. So a new approach that we uh, are starting to see now and are, are, are promoting in the market is uh, a core augmentation approach, which is more front to back, where the newer core actually 
becomes the enabler of the real-time piece of the business, your digital channels, your real-time payment rails, et cetera, and, uh, and almost takes over what we call the memo post front end of a legacy core. And the back end still plays that traditional role of batch-based or nightly processing and feeding those downstream systems which don't actually require real-time intervention. And then slowly again, the, that's not the end state, that's an interim state where they've been able to now introduce the, the platform they want to move to, and then iteratively and progressively uh, moving uh, the legacy core to the new core. Uh, but they also can start launching their newer products on that new core. And I think that's the other advantage that we're seeing is, is that uh, you have these dual cores acting as one in the short term with a view to sunsetting that legacy in the longer term. So actually, you're, you're getting to one of your first comments, which is putting the customer center. Um, basically, you're, you're improving the experience and then fixing the back office after the fact. Not, af- not that much after, obviously, but, but you're really working on the front end experience, correct? Yes, absolutely. In fact, that's where Technosys began its life, is, is building those front end experiences over digital channels for the customer. So we're, we're one of the few firms that not only have a front and a back end within one company, but we actually designed our core uh, with that customer-centric mindset from the very beginning. And it really permeates every single thing we do, not just our architecture of the system and how we think about designing uh, CyberBank, but even our pricing model uh, and, and the way we describe and go to market with our solution. It has that customer a centric vision at the heart of the company and our product. So how has the rise of things like embedded banking and banking as a service really changed the way that not only provide more opportunities and revenue streams, but also changed what organizations are looking for from a core digital banking platform provider? Yeah, it's all about making that customer journey seamless. So let's take a simple example of, of something that we've all seen over the last decade evolve buying an airplane ticket, right? Of course, the first thing one could start to do when the airlines started shifting to online purchasing of their tickets was embedding the ability to pay for that ticket online. So like, like most things in financial services and including embedded financial services, it all begins with, with money movement, right? With payments. Uh, but now we start to see things like the ability to uh, book a hotel and a rental car as part of that airline uh, ticket purchase we see the ability to purchase both trip and travel insurance as part of that journey uh, and so on and so forth. So the, the whole point is that you've got this journey, which is I'm going on a trip and the airlines are now starting to think about what is everything you need even beyond and above what we offer you? What is everything you need for that trip? And that increases, of course, loyalty and customer satisfaction. It makes that journey that much more seamless. And so we're going to start to see banks continuing to come up with financial products and services that they embed in non-financial brands, right? We'd all began with uh, embedding in uh, fintech players, like a Chime Bank is probably the most famous example of that. Um, you know, even if we go back far enough in time, we see the Bancorp Bank out of Delaware embedding banking into wealth managers and insurance companies back when banks and insurance and brokerage couldn't be under one umbrella. Uh, and we see, you know, obviously payments has, has always been embedded as part of those customer journeys. But now it's really this concept of embedded is really exploding. Uh, we, you know, the hot topic, of course, buy now, pay later is another example of embedded finance where we're, we're, we're commingling traditional payment lending and deposit solutions in ways that truly address customer needs at the point when they need them. 
Now, banks are, are, are not all banks are going to be able to play the same uh, way in this space. Some banks are going to be excellent at, at the utility model or the plumbing, if you will, of embedded finance. And they're going to excel at operational efficiency and low cost and uninterrupted uh, service availability. Other banks are going to be more brand first, uh, where they want their brand front and center, and they don't want to lose that customer uh, engagement, and they don't want to lose that customer loyalty and satisfaction. They're going to have their brands front and center. So we're and there's no right or wrong model. You know, the point right. is that the industry needs all of these models, and uh, and we have banks that are pursuing all these models. So there's there's plenty of room to to grow. But banking as a service in general is a nice new revenue stream for these banks, and it allows smaller players to uh, get customers nationally that they were unable to do so in the past. It allows a whole new revenue stream they never had before. So it really is something that's changing uh, the marketplace. So when we're looking at the core, you know, obviously you, you brought up buy now, pay later. The core really has to be so flexible and built in such a way that it can take on new products. But just as importantly, the incorporating of things like AI and natural language processing and machine learning and blockchain and Bitcoin, all these other things, how does Texas work at building these capabilities or functionalities within the platform so that you don't have to completely rebuild something? How, how do you build that flexibility into the core? Yeah, so that flexibility in the core uh, is, by the way, what, what shrinks the time to market to deploy or change the core and, and build those uh, new financial products that the customers are sinking. Uh, and it all begins uh, with that concept of being able to work at a primitive level, but we also wrap uh, the core with what's called low-code or no-code tool sets. So you can actually uh, automate the, the creation of code and the deployment of code in ways that we couldn't do before, and you become less reliant upon uh, more expensive the software engineers and programmers, right? And, more, and you can have simple business analysts or product managers uh, defining the, the services that the bank wants to offer through these low-code uh, tool sets. Now, AI it brings a whole other dimension. We see the three largest flavors of AI, if you will, in the banking industry are the ones that you mentioned, machine learning, natural language processing. I would add robotics to that equation as well. Um, now, machine learning, of course, has uh, probably a very exciting promise of delivering more uh, actionable and automated and timely insights uh, because the banks have this abundance of data uh, that's, that's, that they don't necessarily uh, have the tools to gain those insights and then act upon those insights and shift the, the insights from the executive management of the firm uh, to the front-facing uh, staff of the firm or customer-facing staff to the customer themselves. And that's the ultimate journey is how do I uh, point those actionable insights to the customer themselves so that we don't have this sort of lag between what I learned about you and what you need to when you can take action upon that. But of course, um, the, there's still significant challenges in, in building these models. Uh, they're much better models because they self-adapt, uh, unlike a traditional business rules engine, which might be predictive, but not self-adapting. And the models obviously come often with inherent bias uh, that we have to kind of work through uh, to make sure that the, you know, the data itself is reflective of the true behavior and needs of the customer. And also uh, customer data privacy policies and, and regulatory privacy policies can also limit how this data can be used. 
So all the, the combinations of data quality, availability of talent, lack of investment in the infrastructure, all of these are exacerbating the challenges, but machine learning remains to me still one of the most exciting uh, uh, possibilities of, of AI. And we've started to, uh, to bring that in there in a very specific way. So our focus at Technicis uh, is, is less about marketing offers and using machine learning for the traditional spaces or fraud detection. Uh, you know, in my experience, the bank, the majority of decision management spend is in marketing first and fraud second with a growing uh, uh, center around things like anti-money laundering uh, and tax evasion and these types of scenarios. But we really where the new trend is going to be is financial health and wellness of the customer. And how can I use these actionable triggers uh, and the data that comes from the, the bank accounts that the customer holds? Uh, to really provide uh, daily nudges, if you will, uh, uh, that change the customer behavior in a positive way so that they truly are meeting their goals and uh, not getting themselves into financial trouble. The second way, uh, the second flavor, that natural uh, language processing flavor, is really part of a theme that we call the conversational bank, which is rapidly emerging. Uh, it's been a great journey over the last 10, 20 years of digital self-service through the internet and and the mobile app, but it's still largely about filling out forms and pushing buttons, right? And, and uh, especially the younger generation wants to interact in more natural ways with their bank. What does that mean? That means they want to speak to the bank or they want to uh, type. So uh, email, e-chat, these types of uh, capabilities or speaking to a smart speaker or a smartphone. This is, this is a more natural way of, way of engaging with your bank. And that's where that natural language processing comes in. But it has to be done a, in a way which allows, allows for an out, right? So one of the things we've done is we've built in uh, sentiment analysis. So we can understand that the customer is getting a bit frustrated with the experience and wants to seamlessly transition to a human agent or a human relationship manager, uh, or simply just the customer is requesting to be transferred. And so we're seeing a retraining of the contact center staff because we still wanna stay in the channels that the customer enjoys, those chat channels or those video channels, but we want to uh, seamlessly transition away from the chat bots and, and, and other uh, uh, emerging channels that were, were being handled uh, using this natural language processing and transition seamlessly to a human agent, but continue to stay in those channels. You know, it's interesting because when you're talking about how you implement a program, you know, Speed is of utmost importance right now. The ability to introduce a new product at speed, the ability to make an offer at speed and all this. And, and that's a, a major advantage of a, a modern core is that these things would take a year or more in a, in a traditional core and, and adding new products that may not even be able to be done. Let's say a buy now, pay later scenario and building an AI engine or a machine learning engine on, a, on an outdated core can't be done um, just because of the speed of element. But, but if an organization realizes that one of the key components of, of the digital world is the speed to market of solutions, offers, products, integrations, all these different elements, really without having a modern core, it's almost impossible to do it, but you certainly can't maximize or optimize the experience from the customer standpoint. You know, in the other element of speed is the speed of implementation, the speed of actually working with you. And I, I know I'm asking you a wide open question because it's not something like you you buy it, you plug it in and it turns on or, or that it's all done at once. 
But if an organization decides that they want to modernize and transform their core, what kind of time frame are they looking at and how do you break that time frame apart? Because it, it appears from what your discussions are that you sit down with a client, first find out what their goal is. F- then you try to find out, you know, how they how they want to build this transformation. But you also have to tell them at some point, you know, what the time frame is going to be. What is the time frame that an organization is usually looking at to see results? Yeah, earlier in the podcast, you actually brought up that one third figure. And we literally are in apples to apples comparison, seeing a one third to one fourth, uh, the amount of time and effort it takes on a, to do something on a, on a legacy core from the 70s and 80s versus a more modern core uh, that we have now. So working, you know, actually having done those effort estimates uh, with, the, with the bank's legacy team and then doing them against the, the newer team using the newer core, we are seeing those kinds of dramatic uh, time to market reductions. And the, lo- the long pull in the tent is no longer my core. The long pull in the tent is perhaps those surrounding systems or retraining bank staff or, or what have you, right? So we've been able to eliminate the core being the historical uh, thing in the, in the bank's project that take, takes the longest and costs the most. Now the core can cost the least and take the shortest amount of time and the onus falls elsewhere within the firm uh, to dramatically uh, escalate the other ways they implement change within their bank. Now, of course, that's for a legacy or an incumbent bank. A neobank, we've seen uh, remarkable uh, uh, times to market. Like obviously, neobanks have the advantage that there is no incumbent or legacy software. We're not transforming from one thing to the other. We're building a tech stack from scratch. And it's not just our solution. It's also the surrounding solutions that the bank is adopting are also cloud-first, low-code tool-enabled, and so forth. All the, all the tricks of the modern age that one has to dramatically shrink what typically would take years to launch a new bank. We've been able to launch cores in a three to six month time frame for those neobanks. Now, granted, that, that's focused around a very specific MVP or release one scope. Uh, so not everyone's going to achieve three to six month time frame, but these are, these are just super surprising numbers. And some of the things we've seen in our home base of Latin America are these kinds of uh, uh, fast moving neobanks who've been able to go live with their MVP in, in, in less than one year's time. And it's been ac- absolutely remarkable uh, to, to see that. It's not something I expected to see even in my own lifetime doing this now for almost 30 years. Yeah, it, it, it seems to give you, you know, it's very much like digital transformation that it's not, you know, modernizing the core is not a destination. It, it continues to evolve and new things happen in the marketplace that make it so you have to bring in updates and new ways of doing things. And I think it's important for people to realize, you know, once you made that decision, your work has just begun. And even once you've implemented a lot of what you've decided to do, your work continues. It, it's not something we let go because the, the marketplace is evolving so quickly. As you said, you know, we're even modernizing the core of what I call legacy fintechs. Fintechs have been around for a decade or so. And and the importance of that is is non-negotiable. I mean, the reality is you, you can't stay in the past and expect to be in the future um, and exist in the future. So um, I'm, I'm wondering, when you're talking about this core transformation, it's, it's a big endeavor and it, it takes resources, both financial and human. Can any organization of any size really take on this size of a transformation? I think they can. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned there is really talking about uh, how to manage change. Uh, in, in my career in the 2000s, there was actually a lot of regulatory pressure in markets like the UK and the US 
uh, that focused on how do banks manage change holistically, not just technology change, but change in general. So there was a, a very rapid maturing of program management processes and those things. In 2010s, it was also about moving to agile. Um, and agile really also helps the bank shift costs from a CapEx perspective to an OpEx perspective so that you start to think about things in a continuous change mindset rather than a traditional project mindset, which has a beginning and an end. And then there's costs associated with that that gets amortized over so many years, according to bank depreciation policies and the like. So that, that, that mindset that we are going to be in continuous change mode and continuously adapting to our environment. And we're starting to see these methodologies permeate banks of all sizes. I would say that coupled with the technology enhancements that we've seen over the last decade or so, right? Cloud, I no longer have to have a data center, a network operating center, these physical facilities, these hardware stacks, um, low-code tools as we've been discussing. I no longer have to have uh, super sophisticated programmers and software engineers making six-figure salaries. Um, open source, right? A lot of uh, open source, even embedded in our own solution in CyberBank, um, open source dramatically lowers the, the the software licensing costs that one needs and has traditionally play, uh, paid to their software vendors. All of this is sort of having a net effect uh, around simplicity to configure and deploy, uh, dramatically lower total cost of ownership. And it brings this sort of democratization of technology so that you don't need to be a top four bank with a $10 billion annual IT spend. You can be a smaller bank and achieve some of these same things that the larger banks are achieving. So it's a whole different world and it really sort of starts to level the playing field in a dramatic way. So uh, will every community bank uh, under a billion in assets um, be able to achieve what uh, the top four are achieving? Maybe not, but at least now the playing field is, is, is level for them to, to at least try to compete on that space. You know, Michael, from your perspective, you know, a lot of what you do works on implementation and getting your solutions to the financial community. But it, because you're a legacy banker and, and because you've been in the world, this world for a long time and your role is is looking at the information that is needed to, to improve your core uh, solution, you know, what trends, um, opportunities, even threats do you see in the future of financial services that you're looking to as an organization to try to be prepared for, to get ready for? Yeah, so we're definitely uh, focused on, um, you know, empowering the traditional players as well as the neobanks, but also very much the traditional players to get ready for a future world and have a future-proof model that enables them to compete. Uh, you know, not just with the uh, growing set of, of competitors that are out there that, that don't have the drag of legacy uh, holding them back and are able to uh, adapt at a speed that the legacy banks traditionally have not been able to, uh, but also for more existential or esoteric threats that we're starting to see, right? What happens in the world of a retail or direct-to-consumer uh, CBDC, right? These central bank digital currencies. Uh, they have a lot of potential benefits to society, uh, such as reducing the number of unbanked customers or citizens, um, simplifying payments infrastructure, even lowering financial crime. But we see um, uh, some potential risks with these kind of fundamental changes in the long term with things like CBDCs, right? Uh, 
erosion of consumer privacy, lowering of uh, customer service quality, especially if the government is now going to be playing the role of of guiding uh, uh, consumers along, uh, introducing single points of failure into the the industry. And and fundamentally, what does this mean for the role of banks if if they're no longer deposit-taking institutions? So banks have to start thinking beyond, again, traditional transaction processing for their savings accounts or their investments accounts. And they have to start now, um, you know, thinking about getting into more of the advisory game. Um, We have to start now thinking about cost of funds if banks are no longer uh, able to take in deposits and then turn around and lend those out. What does that do to cost of funds and how can banks get, get ahead of that game as well? So there are some things that we see in the medium to long term, which which pose even more existential threats to the traditional banking model than just the emergence of fintechs or neobanks. A lot on everybody's plate. So, you know, finally, Michael, what key piece of advice would you give to financial institutions who are evaluating, updating their their back office core and, and cloud native digital and their core banking platforms? You know, what number one, what piece of advice do you give them and, and where do they start? Yeah, absolutely. I do think that the neo cores, uh, or sometimes called the generation three cores, which are less about programming and parameter files and more about uh, flexibility and low code tools. Um, uh, this is is now uh, here to stay. And every bank of every size is now exploring them. The good news is there's very few of these vendors on the planet. So as you explore your options, you don't have to create a RFI, which has 20 vendors uh, listed in your RFI to explore. Uh, the NeoCores, it takes a brave company such as ours to get into this space and, and build something like a core solution from scratch. Um, and many such as ours are also coming from overseas. So if you're a US domiciled bank, you know, look for those folks that even if they're coming from overseas, they have a proven track record, uh, and making sure that they are making the investments in the U.S. market, uh, regulatory compliance, uh, U.S. accounting rules, uh, U.S. localization on all fronts, that they're hiring teams on the ground for sales and delivery and uh, uh, ongoing product support. You know, if you're not seeing evidence of that, uh, they're probably not serious about the U.S. market and maybe spreading themselves quite thin. So there are clues you can look for, not just in the product. It's not just about always adopting the latest and greatest technology. That's definitely a piece of it because you want to future-proof your enterprise, but also look at the company itself and what are the moves it's making as it expands to to new and different markets. You know, great point. And, and you know, I, I keep on bringing this up probably in every podcast now because it's a big challenge in the banking industry. I'm familiar enough with the banking industry to know that even the most minor decisions Financial institutions tend to take too long to make those decisions. And and I've used this term before that it's better to make an imperfect decision today than what you think may be a perfect decision 18 to 24 months from now. Because with everything changing so fast, the ability to make up that time is gone. You're not going to be able to do it. And it is it is better to find that organization. A couple of things that I recommend. Number one, make the decision quickly. You can bury yourself in an analysis. And, and the reality is the differences between different providers is there, but it's not so significant to justify a 18 to 24 month delay. I, I'm just because that marketplace changes as as anybody who has lived through 
implementation of ATMs, implementation of online banking, implementation of the first mobile banking solutions. People that made the decision in 18 to 24 months look back and said, geez, I wish I had made the decision on the first day. I wouldn't have been that far off. Secondly, get your team together and make the decision as to what you want to become. Because Michael brought up some interesting points about you got to define what kind of bank you're going to be in the open banking world, in the digital banking world, what markets you want to solve for, who your competition really, who you think it needs to be. And if you can define that, that helps you a long way. Thirdly, and it's so important, pick a partner that's willing to work with other partners of yours. It, it, the problem is some organizations just say, you know, I want it all. And they'll spend more time fighting with your other partners than they will working on your behalf. And, and the good news is we tried very hard and we, we succeeded to date, not allowing those partners to be on our podcast um, because they, they, they burn bridges very quickly. And finally, be willing to work with an organization that's going to be able to take the ball and run with it down the field on your behalf and have enough case studies that can allow you to avoid a lot of the, the decisions that are the same for every financial institution. We didn't talk about that, Michael, but I know in past talking with technicists, you know, one of the benefits you bring to the table is you can take about half the decisions that were, used to be on the plate and tell them how they should go today because you've seen enough successes. And I, you know, I use the GPS a lot, the analogy of a GPS. But a GPS allows you to avoid the traffic jams, avoid the detours, avoid the rough roads. This is what a good partner does. And this is what a, a firm like Texas Technicis can do because they have enough implementation to say, you know what? We kind of screwed this one up because of this. We kind of got this one really right because of this. The client did this that made the whole implementation smoother. Bringing those case studies to the table allows you to implement faster and more successfully than you would have been able to do on your own. Um, Michael, um, thank you so much. And thank you for Technicist for sponsoring this podcast. But, but most importantly, um, thank you for being a, a visionary because in your role, you have to be. You, you can't sit still. You have to continually transform yourself and your organization in such a way that allows you to serve your clients better on what they need to do today. You know, we, we've, you, I keep on mentioning buy now, pay later, but when a product that was as old as time comes out in a new way in a matter of days and becomes a disruptor, you've got to be ready for it. When organizations are looking at Bitcoin and looking at deploying Bitcoin in ATMs, you have to be ready for that. And and again, being prepared is three quarters of the game. So again, thank you, Michael. Appreciate you being on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. Enjoyed it, enjoyed it, Jim. And looking forward to our next conversation and, and those insights that you gave there at the end. This is why you're one of the GPSs for our industries. And we're very <laughs> appreciative of that. So thank you for having me and thank you for uh, having Technicist to sponsor today's podcast. Thanks for listening to Bank and Transform Solutions Podcast, a new banking podcast that focuses on innovative solutions for the financial institution community. We would like to thank Technicist, the sponsor of today's show. If you're a solution provider wanting to discuss how you can help banks and credit unions solve a major marketplace challenge, drop me an email. We're keen to help. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Thank you so much for listening.
Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.